one of the points that St. Thomas Aquinas makes in the Summa is that in certain respects, the Eucharist is a more incredible mystery, more incredible miracle than the creation of the world. Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's show, Chloe Langer. I'm here with Joe Heschmeyer. He's a blogger over at Shameless Popery. He works for Holy Family School of Faith here in the Archdiocese of Kansas City, Kansas. Thanks for coming on the show today, Joe. I'm more than happy. Thanks, <laughs> Chloe. So after Easter, we've been delving into the physical case for Catholicism. So we started with the empty tomb. Then we talked about divine mercy. We talked about the Shroud of Turin. And this week's episode is on Eucharistic miracles. Yeah, so we want to talk about a few different things. First, why do we need miracles? Like, why as Christians don't we just avoid miracles and just mm-hmm. talk about logical proofs? As it's very easy, I think, to kind of fall into the, the yep. pattern of doing. Yep. Uh, and then why do we believe in the Eucharist as a miracle? And then finally, what do we mean by Eucharistic miracles if not simply transubstantiation? Because mm-hmm. a lot of people may not know that there are actual cases in places like Lanciano and places like Orvieto mm-hmm. In which we have documented cases of the moment of consecration, the bread and wine visibly changing into flesh and blood. And that we preserved evidence that's lasted for centuries Mm -hmm. without preservatives, documenting these miracles, showing these things. And you can still, I mean, you can get on a plane. Right. One of the things we've been kind of harping on is Mm -hmm. that if you want to see the truth of Catholicism, Oftentimes, you just buy a plane ticket and you can go witness this with your own eyes. So we find miracles throughout the Old Testament. We see miracles happen in the life of Christ. We witness miracles even after Christ has been raised from the dead and he's gone back to heaven. What's the purpose of miracles in salvation history? I think this is clearest in the Apostle John's Gospel, where he talks about the miracles as signs. That's the word he uses for Mm -hmm. them. He says, the wedding feast of Cana, this is the first sign he performed right. in Cana and Galilee. Right. And so the miracles are signs. That's the first point. Now this means more than just showing that Jesus had supernatural powers. Obviously, one thing immediately you see is that it proves Jesus is a miracle worker. Right. But it does more than that. Um, the miracles themselves are symbolic of deeper realities. Mm-hmm. So to explain what I mean, let me contrast this with miracles that aren't signs. So the Gnostic gospel, the infancy gospel of Thomas, Mm -hmm. it's a Gnostic forgery from the mid-100s to the late 100s, purporting to be by the Apostle Thomas, but it isn't really. Obviously, Thomas wasn't writing in the mid to late 100s. (laughs) So what makes it so appealing, the reason people liked this gospel, or alleged gospel, Mm -hmm. gospel in heavy quotation marks, is that it told the childhood years, the hidden years of Christ, And so it's all about all these, like, really cool miracles that he did, allegedly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, what we actually know from the real Gospels is that his miraculous ministry didn't seem to have started until he began his public ministry at 30. Right, that's why we had the, like, first sign. Right, and and why the people of Nazareth and the people of Capernaum were so shocked when this guy who'd just been an ordinary carpenter... Uh, undoubtedly a wise carpenter, but (laughs) (laughs) not a carpenter raising people from the dead. The fact that that just seems to come out of the blue Mm -hmm. is a shock, and that's very clear in the canonical Gospels. It's very clear in the first century text we have about Jesus. Mm -hmm. So we do have this kind of question mark of what happens between his infancy and when he turns 30. The only detail we actually get 
is the wedding feast. Or, I'm sorry, the, is the finding in the temple. So you can see why it's appealing to be mm-hmm. like, I wonder what it was like. Right, yeah. And so it's full of all of these alleged miracles. But the miracles don't have a point. I'll give you an example. So okay. I think he's five when this happens. It's not entirely clear from the text, mm-hmm. but the thing that happened right before it, he was five in. And so he seems to have been around the age of five. Okay. And he's walking and another kid bumps into him. Or the text says, a child ran and dashed against his shoulder. And fake baby Jesus kills him. Wait, he kills the kid? Curses him, strikes him dead. Doesn't seem very Jesus-like. It doesn't seem very Jesus-like, right? Like, what is the message of that kind of supposed miracle? Just like, don't mess with me? So it shows like a wrathful and an irrational boy who's powerful but not good. Right. It's like the hero story where this kid has all these powers, but he hasn't learned to control them yet. And so he goes through this phase where, what the heck's going on with me? Like Elsa, like, what do you mean that I killed my, almost killed my sister? Yes. (laughs) In Frozen. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Frozen references. This is a top quality (laughs) podcast. Um, Well, the real, the Christian gospel's presentation of the miracles performed by Jesus They're not like that. Mm -hmm. And this is actually a really striking thing once you notice it. That the miracles all have a pedagogical meaning within themselves. Mm -hmm. So, for example, there's all of these healing miracles. Right. Um, Mark 2 would be a great place to look for this. It's the healing miracle of the paralytic. Mm -hmm. So, Jesus is teaching. He's inside of a house. It's packed to the gills. And so, this paralyzed man comes. His four friends, like, carry him there on a cot. Mm -hmm. But they can't bring him inside the house to be healed. And so they climb up the roof, they open up the roof, and they lower him down Mm -hmm. through the newly created skylight. Jesus looks at the guy and he says to him, your sins are forgiven. Mm -hmm. Which is not what you expect him to say. Right. It's not the kind of healing that we would have thought was going to happen. We would think the healing would be like, oh man, this guy is paralyzed. Obviously he needs to be physically healed. Right. But Jesus is saying, no, the healing that's primary here, the principal thing that needs healing right now is this guy's heart. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We don't know much about him, but like, Jesus clearly did. And it's only when the people are shocked in saying, who alone but God can forgive sins, that he says, what's easier to say? Mm -hmm. Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk. And then to prove that he has the power to heal through the forgiveness of sins, he heals the paralyzed man and sends him on his way. Mm -hmm. So what's the message? It isn't just, cool, look how powerful I am. Right. It's this physical healing is a visible sign of the invisible healing that had already happened. This is what we would call sacramental. Right. Right. A sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible reality. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about the sacraments, that's how to think about them. Like, there's a reason baptism for the washing away of sins is done with water. Now, God could have instituted it by saying, I want you to roll around in the mud and that's how you become a Christian. But the sign value yep. would be wrong. Mm-hmm. The, it would mm-hmm. be symbolizing the opposite of what was actually going on there. Right. Right. And so, you know, this is obvious with a lot of wedding things. You know, like the ring and all of that. Yep. Even the unity candle, which is not a Catholic tradition. But at least it, there's something beautiful that's kind of being expressed. Right. Even in those sorts of cases. Right. Mm-hmm. So... All of that symbolic value is built into Jesus's miracles and it's built into the sacraments that continue that miraculous kind of power. That's the first thing, that they're they're signs, that as signs, they're pretty specifically symbolic. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing I would say, I guess that was the first and second, is that they don't 
replace faith, they supplement it. So when Jesus is at Nazareth, um, he isn't able to perform miracles. And that's a shocking thing to say. But this is what it says in Mark 6, verses 5 to 6. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. Mm -hmm. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So this is really tying up everything we've said so far. This is at Nazareth. These are the people who were with him in his actual infancy. And they didn't believe that this guy who seemed so nondescript, so unimportant, was able to even perform a miracle. Other than a few sick people who were ready to believe because apparently they, they needed it so badly they were ready to, to trust this guy. I mean, look at this. You see this in, in different miracles. Um, one thing that I've been really meditating on scripture a lot this week is is the healing of the woman who'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years. And she comes up to the Lord and, and kind of it's in a busy crowd and, and she touches just the hem of his garment and the her bleeding stops and he you know calls her out and he's like, who touched me? I, he'd felt the power go out of him. And the phrase he uses is that your faith has saved you. And so I think that, yeah, really hammers that point home. Yeah, it's incredible because it does show the, the importance and the power um, of faith mm-hmm. and the necessity of it. So the miracles are rewarding people for their faith and strengthening a faith that's already there. Right. But so often what we want is to not have to make an act of trust in God mm-hmm. because he'll just prove it to us. Like we want to use the miracles as a replacement or a substitute for faith. Like, right. You said this, now prove it. You know, oh, I'm in a plane accident. Lord, you know, if you save this plane from crashing, then I will give you like everything that you've desired. I may have used this joke before, but uh, <laughs> I really like this joke. I heard it in a homily mm-hmm. once. And so a person is in a crowded parking lot mm-hmm. and they're running late for a meeting. And so they're just like, God, please let there be a parking spot for me. Please let one open up. Mm-hmm. And, and there's nothing at first. And they're like, okay, like I'll start going back to mass again. I'll, you know, stop doing all these wicked things I'm doing. Right. And then immediately a, a car pulls out and they're like, oh, never mind. One opened up. <laughs> I'm okay, Lord. Thank you for the... <laughs> Thanks, I don't need your help. Rather than like, oh, great, this you, this Lord. prayerful request has been answered. Right. It's like, I guess we don't need that anymore. <laughs> but that, I think, is often how we approach these right. things. Like, I think the reason I find the joke so funny mm-hmm. is because it's so uh, accurate to the human condition. Yep. So why aren't a miracle a substitute for faith is maybe a good question mm-hmm. to consider. Yeah. Because we can say, oh, you know what? The miracles are not a substitute for faith. They're an aid to it. And someone who isn't already a believer is like, why? Mm-hmm. Well, go back to what we originally were talking about. The miracles have a sign value. So God is not our butler. He's not just going to do miracles on command. Right. Because a miracle done on command would be a miss sign. It would be significant of the wrong or of a false reality. In other words, like if God's saying, I'm the all-powerful God of the universe, mm-hmm. and he's calling us to believe in him, and he's calling us to obey him, and he proves this by constantly obeying us on command. Good point. Yeah. yeah. You see it's how that doesn't... Yeah. 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 Yep. Because the miracle would be a misrepresentation of the reality of God. There are a few cases in which as an extraordinary act, like as with Gideon, mm-hmm. where he's asking someone to do something so radical right. that they're like, well, can you prove this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he or an angel will. Those are exceptionally rare. And they're when something pretty remarkable or odd is being asked for Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but the ordinary believe and trust enough has been given and so we see this also in the exodus the jews were given a ton of or the israelites i should say were given a ton of signs but when they started to put god to the test at massa and meribah and they said we're hungry give us food basically god whoa total (laughs) overstep right that's not prayer that's demanding right Mm -hmm. 
And so it wasn't even that they were praying for food or anything like this, because they end up getting the manna. But that position, that attitude of, God, you're my genie, mm-hmm. you're my butler, right. you're my servant, is such the opposite of who and what our relationship to God is. Mm-hmm. That, of course, I mean, in thinking about it, I guess you could say, like in, in terms of parenting, if your child constantly demanded that you prove that you were really smarter than them by doing all of their homework... Who's really in charge, right? Right, right, exactly. Like, if all of our problems are just going to be solved by being like, well, if you're really God, you got to prove it. Do this. Yeah. In in my family, we call this the vending machine Jesus. Yeah. Like, if I put in this, you'll give me this. Or, like, bargaining with Jesus. Yeah. And I that's just, such an easy trap to yeah. fall into, oh, isn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm so guilty of this. I still fall into this in prayer. Or, like, Jesus is Santa Claus. Here's my list. Give this to me. As Catholics, we we point to Catholicism. We When we talk about Catholicism with, especially Protestant brothers and sisters, it can be easy to um, to not bring up miracles or to not mention the supernatural or the miraculous. And, like, I'm I'm bad at this. I'm always hesitant to bring up things like Marian apparitions or Padre Pio stigmata or Eucharistic miracles. But why do we need miracles when it comes to apologetics? Why shouldn't we avoid them when it comes to those kinds of conversations? Yeah, I mean, I would say for myself, I have an even bigger um, awkwardness, say, about bringing up miracles to people who are not believers at all. Because at least, like, a Protestant believes that miracles have happened. Right. That's true. Yeah. And some, I mean, so both of us live in Kansas, and there's a strong Pentecostal present here, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they believe miracles still happen. So I'd say just as, like, a total aside, when you're talking to Protestants, Mm -hmm. a helpful question to ask is what their position is on ongoing miracles. Okay. Because if they believe miracles are still very much a reality in the world today, Mm -hmm. you're going to have a very different conversation Yep. Then someone who's a like a cessationist who believes that miracles stop with the death of the last apostle. Okay. It's, part of it's going to be a question of whether you even need to prove miracles still happen. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> they may already, they may be willing to grant you that. But okay. So why mention miracles at all? Which is, I think, the, the heart of your question. I guess I'd say because it's what scripture says to do. Because it's what scripture shows to do. Because the miracles are signs. And... Because we've got an extraordinary case, and so this is a a popular atheist argument. Extraordinary uh, claims require extraordinary evidence. Mm -hmm. And they usually mean an extraordinary claim requires a burden of proof like beyond a reasonable doubt or something like this. But a better way of understanding that is that the kind of evidence should also be extraordinary. So if you're making a claim about a spiritual reality, Mm -hmm. it's reasonable to point to something spiritual as a result. And someone who refuses to believe in miracles and wants you to prove the case for Jesus Christ without any reference to miracles, there's something really confused about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Monsignor Ronald Knox, he talks about this in his book, The Belief of Catholics. Mm -hmm. He says it'd be like offering someone the terms of a duel, you know, so customarily in dueling, Mm -hmm. apparently, (laughs) the person you challenged to a duel got to choose the weapon. Okay, well, hey, that's handy. To yeah, well, I challenge someone to a duel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Side note, dueling is immoral. <laughs> but uh, he, he uses this as an example. But if you say, okay, I challenge you to a duel, mm-hmm. and you say, okay, I want it to be pistols at dawn. Okay. But I'm the only way to win is that you have to stab me. <laughs> like, you're <laughs> asking for something incompatible with the kind of right. tools that you're allowing. Right. So sense. if you say, I don't want to hear anything about miracles... Mm-hmm. But I need to be convinced in a way that only a miracle would convince someone. Because if you don't have miracles, one of the things is that it's always going to be a probabilistic case. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. you're going to say the best we can get from history alone is that this seems very likely. Well, the miraculous evidence goes beyond that. It's God revealing it. And so just recognize and talking to a person that if they're wanting only non-miraculous evidence, they Mm -hmm. can't have a miraculous burden of proof. Okay, now having said all of that, let's get a little into the scriptural (laughs) evidence. Uh, Deuteronomy 6. Mm -hmm. It says, The Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And then in Exodus 14, it explains that it's because of this. It says, Israel saw the great work which the Lord did against the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. And the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Yep. So the way they knew God was really God, and the way they knew Moses really was a representative of God, these powerful signs. Right. You know, a lot of more like skeptical scholars will want to discount the existence that, you know, maybe the parting of the Red Sea didn't happen, maybe mm-hmm. the Exodus story is just a story, etc. Usually because like the Egyptians don't write great chronicles about how they got defeated by a bunch of slaves. It makes sense. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> But the reason the Israelites believed is because they witnessed these things. Mm-hmm. This is why you get this monotheistic tribe emerging in the middle of the desert of a bunch of slave right. exiles. Right. Because they know how they got there. So the Old Testament, like the faith of Israel, is rooted in signs and wonders. Yep. It is a miraculously rooted faith. Mm-hmm. Well, this is also true in the New Testament in terms of when Jesus comes. So uh, St. Peter put it this way. He said... Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Wow, that's how he presents it. This isn't just a guy with a cool message. Mm -hmm. This isn't just a guy with a message of compassion, as we often want to say. This is someone who did miracles that only God or someone commissioned by God Mm -hmm. could do. Mm -hmm. So how do we know Jesus' message is true? Because he does things that only God can do. So that was Acts 2. But Jesus, he presents it this way as well. So in John 11, when he's at the tomb of Lazarus, Mm -hmm. he prays. And he prays out loud. He says, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I know that thou hearest me always. But I said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that thou didst send me. And then he tells Lazarus to come forth from the tomb, and Lazarus does. He's just said, basically, I'm banking my entire reputation (laughs) on the next words. Lazarus, come out. Yep. And so when he does, it's like, oh, okay, this really is who he says he is. Right. He really is the resurrection and the life, Mm -hmm. like he's presenting himself. And so Hebrews 2, he talks about this as well. Or, you know, the author of Hebrews talks about this as well. Mm -hmm. Saying that the good news of the gospel, quote, was declared at first by the Lord... And it was attested to us by those who heard him. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his own will. Hebrews 2 verses 3 to 4. So there's four witnesses. Jesus in his own teaching and his own ministry. The apostles and the other eyewitnesses who, who saw, for example, the resurrection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God, the Father, through the miracles he's performing through Jesus... And the Holy Spirit in the gifts that he's giving. And the fact, like, you can't have Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit without Easter and the resurrection of Jesus. Right. So if the resurrection didn't happen, why are they suddenly able to do all these miracles? Not just Jesus, but the apostles as well. Mm -hmm. We don't often think about this. 
But people didn't just see Jesus performing miracles. They didn't just see Jesus rising from the dead. A lot of people who never had a chance to see Jesus saw the apostles performing miracles. Yep. And how were they able to perform miracles unless it was God working miracles as proof of the Christian message? Um, let's look at John chapter 14. Um, and Christ tells Philip, the apostle, that he who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And the greater than he will do, because I go to the Father. What are the sorts of miracles that Christ promises? What, what do we need to be on the lookout for as Catholics? Yeah, I mean, before we even talk about that, let's just make one point really quick. Jesus is telling the apostles are going to perform greater works than what he himself performed among them. Can we stop and marvel at that? Yeah. I mean, if a Catholic just said, you know, the followers of Jesus have actually done greater works than Jesus did in terms of signs and miracles. I think anyone they were talking to, a uh, non-believer, a Protestant, even a, a Catholic who's only like moderately well-read, mm -hmm. would hear that and be like, whoa, uh, that sounds yeah, a little a blasphemous. Yeah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But it's what Jesus said. He says, my followers are going to do greater works. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what are those greater works? Mm -hmm. Now here I want to really say, if the sacraments aren't true, it's just not clear what Jesus is talking about here. If the sacraments are true, we can easily see how this scripture is true. So let's talk about the sacraments. Obviously, we're going to get more in the Eucharist in a second. This is a lot of like background Intro, on the... Yeah, yeah. We'll, we're getting there. <laughs> so, yeah, baptism in the Eucharist. Let's talk about those just in terms of the sign value. One of the major signs uh, that God did for the Israelites mm -hmm. was the manna in the desert, and the water from the rock, and the parting of the Red Sea with the pillar of cloud, mm -hmm. symbolizing the Holy Spirit going before them. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, St. Paul describes the water from the rock and the manna as spiritual food and drink. And he's making a connection, how they've basically been baptized through the Red Sea, and they've gotten a sort of proto or pre-Eucharist. They've got spiritual food and drink in mm -hmm. the desert. So we are on Exodus. We are on pilgrimage now. And so we are getting greater signs. Yeah. We're getting greater miracles than what God did for the Israelites. Because we actually have our sins washed away and the enemies of Satan, like the enemy of Satan and like the demons crushed rather than just the Egyptians. Right. And we're getting fed not just the bread of angels, but Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. Not just water from the side of Christ, but his own blood. Right. Like we go deeper into that mystery than even what the Jews got in this very privileged 40 years when they were on pilgrimage. So that would be, the, you know, the, the first way I'd go with that. Second, pretty explicitly, you've got the miraculous forgiving of sins. Go back to the paralytic miracle we mentioned mm -hmm. a minute ago. It's a greater sign in terms of visibility to be able to say rise and walk. But the more profound healing that's needed, as Jesus shows by the very first things he says to the paralyzed man, is the forgiveness of sins. And so he gives the apostles uh, the ability to do that. Yep. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them that whoever sins, they loose are loosened. And whoever sins, they bind are bound. That's an extraordinary spiritual power. Yeah. Very explicitly given. Yep. You know, you can add in addition to that. Also, uh, the exorcisms that they do. You know, one of the other ways Jesus shows who he is is through the casting of demons. And mm -hmm. the apostles continue that. And that's continued to this day. In the Catholic Church. We'll talk about that next Teaser. week. Teaser. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But related to that also, miraculous healings. Because that's one of the big things that he does as well. 
And those continue. The apostles continue to do them. Right. And we still have miraculous healings being performed in mm-hmm. the church now. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I just say, the church herself yep. is a miraculous sign. So, under the Old Testament, uh, or under the Old Covenant, rather, the Jews were a miracle. Uh, they are the tiniest people. They're, they're in a strategic spot that everybody wants, and everyone wants to kill them. And they're fiercely monotheistic. So they, they're in a crossroads, geographically. Yep. They're weak. They're divided among themselves with 12 different tribes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're fiercely monotheistic, telling their more powerful neighbors, hey, by the way, the god you worship is fake. The god you worship is a demon. <laughs> and if we find your idols, we're going to crush them and smash them, and we're going to destroy your temples. Big claims for a tiny people. <laughs> right! <laughs> Very bold. And so, not shockingly, the mm. people around them are like, we're going to hurt and kill you. Right, like, right. This is not acceptable. <laughs> and so they're surrounded by these much stronger people. It, mm-hmm. This is not an accident of history. Right. This is built into the structure. So in Numbers 13, mm-hmm. God explains, this is a deal. Like, I'm choosing you because you're weak mm-hmm. to basically go bully these much stronger bullies. <laughs> In a way that only someone protected by God can do. Yep. So this is uh, verse 28 to 29 of Numbers 13. Yet the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. This is the people's report. This is uh, their concern. So after they go in, uh, and scout out the land, mm-hmm. they They're say, back. Yep. Yet the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites dwell in the land of Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Where did we find these descendants of Anak or the Amalekites or the Hittites or the Jebusites or the Amorites? Mm-hmm. They're all gone. You know, like you can tell <laughs> who was right in this by who's left standing. Because obviously the gods they worshipped weren't the true god. Or that god was too powerless to preserve his revelation, right? Right. Like just a basic point is that the god of the universe, if he wants to communicate his message to his people... Mm-hmm. He can do that in such a way that it won't get wiped out. This is why the church is a sign. This is why the Jewish people were a sign. Because not that, oh, they're so great, or oh, we're so great. Mm -hmm. It's, oh, the God who gave us this message is so great that he's going to protect his message from being corrupted, even by us. Mm -hmm. And so it makes the Jewish people, uh, the Israelites, indestructible. And it makes the church today indestructible. And so the existence of the church against all odds you got this tiny band of people yeah. going up against their own Jewish brethren and going up against the Roman state right. non-violently and winning. Yeah, it's like the ultimate like miraculous under, underdog story. Yeah, like who worships Jupiter today? Nobody. And so you'll find little like nods to this uh, throughout Europe, mm-hmm. uh, like the church Santa Maria Supra Minerva. It's St. Mary's Church over the Minervan Temple. <laughs> And so it's just like the victor standing over the defeated foe. And so the Christians did that frequently. They'd just be like, well, we like this spot. Build a church on top of it. Um, But it it showed, you know, it it showed the reality of of the faith that Christianity survived against the odds with itself a miracle. So in all those ways, I'd say that we've continued and built upon the miracle Jesus begins in the New Testament. So let's dig deeper into the Eucharist, the actual subject of today's podcast. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> and so for those who don't believe in Christ's real presence in the Eucharist, one point of doubt can spring from the fact that, you know, if the bread and wine are actually transformed into Christ's body and blood, why can't we see it? 
And St. Ambrose addresses this in chapter nine of On the Mysteries. And he says, perhaps you will say, I see something else. How is it that you assert that I received the body of Christ? And this is the point which remains for us to prove. And what evidence shall we make use of? So how do you answer the objection? How does St. Ambrose answer that question? Well, let's start with Ambrose. Okay. He begins by looking at the Old Testament and saying, look at all of these times in which the course of nature was changed miraculously. Mm -hmm. So he starts with Moses. You know, the turning of water into blood. Right. The pardon of the Red Sea, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Through prayer, he says, the course of nature is changed miraculously. Okay. That's a prefigurement of the fact that in prayer at the Last Supper... And then at every Mass, the course of nature is going to be changed. Right. So he goes through all of that. He says that grace has more power than nature. And yet so far we've only spoken of the grace of a prophet's blessing. Then he says, okay, how much more powerful is the blessing of Jesus since he's God himself? Right, right. So it's not shocking that he can change the course of nature. But that's not really where most people's objection is. It's more like, why don't we see it? And so he gets into that. He says, The Lord himself proclaims, This is my body. Before the blessing of the heavenly words, another nature is spoken of. After the consecration, the body is signified. He himself speaks of his blood. Before the consecration, it has another name. After it is called his blood. And you say, Amen, that is, it is true. Mm -hmm. So he's saying, basically, well, God is powerful enough to do this. Right. So why don't you see it? Well, he's going to say, that Jesus' own body is itself a miracle. And this is, I think, the most important miracle we can talk about. It's the miracle of the incarnation. Right, right. So he says, why make use of arguments? Let us use the examples he gives. And by the example of the incarnation, prove the truth of the mystery. Did the course of nature proceed as usual when the Lord Jesus was born of Mary? If we look to the usual course, a woman ordinarily conceives after connection with a man. Mm-hmm. And this body which we make is that which was born of the Virgin. Why do you seek the order of nature in the body of Christ, seeing that the Lord Jesus himself was born of a virgin, not according to nature? It is the true flesh of Christ, which crucified and buried then, is this truly the sacrament of his body. In other words, the incarnate virgin-born Jesus, to the senses, doesn't appear to be virgin-born. One obvious sign, he's male. Mm-hmm. So just you think genetically, you would expect someone whose only biological parent is a female to be a female. Right. Something unusual, something against the course of nature, something miraculous has happened to Mm -hmm. you. Where Jesus is truly the son of Mary and is truly virgin born. Uh, But what you would see with your eyes, you have to believe beyond what you can see. So if that's true, and he says... This thing that looks like bread and wine has become my body and blood? Okay. Yeah, you believe it. Because that totally, yeah, it follows the line. You're like, Once yeah, you've established that he's powerful enough that he can change the course of nature, and then you show that his own body mm-hmm. changes the course of nature in such a way that it's not visible to the senses and is only received through faith. Well, then the Eucharist just continues the mystery of the Incarnation. This time of year, we see a lot of littles receiving their First Communion. I, I work at a Catholic bookstore, and it's so cute to see, you know, people come in and buy gifts for First Communion, and, and these kids come in, and they're so excited, and that moment where someone receives the Eucharist for the first time is so beautiful. And I think, for myself, I've been Catholic for 23 years. I'm a cradle Catholic, 
And so it's easy for cradle Catholics to become completely complacent. Like, of course Jesus is here. Jesus is always here. Like, Jesus is here in adoration, too. Like, what's the big deal? And for the importance of seeing, seeing with eyes of faith, um, the importance of the Eucharist and the significance of communion, especially as we grow older, and, and to not grow used to the fact that this is a miracle. So... You know, I heard a great story from a priest who used to be a spy yeah. about when he was in Iraq and the shocked reaction a Muslim friend of his, actually his driver, had when he heard like the reality, like, you believe there's a room in which there's God? Like, why aren't you in that room always? Right. Right. Yeah. Why are we? Or, yeah, when Jesus shows up during the Eucharistic consecration, like, why aren't we just like on the floor? Right. Yeah. It was that comment that made him enter seminary, actually. And he's like, yeah, why am I not in this? <laughs> why, why am I, I not constantly in church? Right, right. right. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, St. Thomas puts it in a beautiful way in the Pange Lingua. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us know that hymn in Latin. Right. Or we'll know like a rhyming translation. But this is the literal translation from Wikipedia. <laughs> so you know it's reliable. Uh, but actually, I mean, it, it does correspond to the Latin pretty that's well. Good. It says, he gives himself with his hands. The word is flesh, makes true bread into flesh by a word. The word as flesh mm-hmm. makes true bread into flesh by a word. I love... Yeah, the play of those mm-hmm. words. And the wine becomes the blood of Christ. And if sense is deficient to strengthen a sincere heart, faith alone suffices. Mm-hmm. He actually uses the phrase sola fide, hey. which has taken on such an ignominious <laughs> use. Right, right. But faith is the only way of access in this mystery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he says, therefore... The great sacrament, let us reverence, prostrate, and let the old covenant give way to a new rite. Let faith stand forth as substitute for defect of the senses. Mm. Okay. Now, this is Thomas Aquinas. This is someone who very much believed in the power of reason to show so much. Right. But there are just going to be times where you just have to believe and trust God, Mm -hmm. and you can't just prove it to yourself by your own power, by your own effort. It's not going to be just accessible to the senses, and you just have to trust. And that's all built into the structure of what miracles are about, encouraging rather than replacing faith. Miracles. Let's dig into the Eucharistic miracles themselves. All right. (laughs) So let's take a look at a specific Eucharistic miracle, um, the miracle of Lanciano. Right? Mm -hmm. Hey, what happened in the 8th century, in this 8th century town in Italy, and how does that point to the reality of what the Eucharist is? Yeah, so this is one of those extraordinary miracles Um, And it's extraordinary even among Eucharistic miracles Mm -hmm. because you have quite a few miracles in which the host will begin to bleed. Right. Visibly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But here the host actually turned into human flesh. So I want to really stress this point. Uh, There is this monk who is also a priest Mm -hmm. who was doubting uh, the real presence internally. He's still trying. Like he's still putting himself out there. He's still... Trying to, he isn't saying, if you're God, prove it to me. Mm-hmm. He's just a priest who's struggling with this. And I, I think it's probably worth mentioning. Priests often have a particular challenge here. You're saying, you know, as Catholics, we can get complacent because we're by the Eucharist all the time. Well, this is not less of a struggle for mm. priests. Right. Both right. because they're under more attack and because in a strange way, it's easier to believe someone else is yep. consecrating the host. Yep. I think if you're the priest and you're holding... What is a piece of bread? And then you pray. To believe that your own prayer is that powerful right. is a particular spiritual struggle. Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to, like, trash right. the Italian the monk priest. Right. who, And apparently neither was God. 
Because rather than just like scolding him or something, mm-hmm. this incredible miracle happens. He's at mass. He's struggling through. Uh, he prays, and at the moment of consecration, an actual visible change happens. What was bread becomes visibly human flesh. Now, of course, at that point, the whole course of the mass is just going to change. You're not <laughs> just going to consume that. This is an incredible miracle. Uh, and so they preserved this miracle. And so to this day, uh, you can go to the eastern coast of Italy, to the little town of Lanciano, and you can go and visit this. It's actually not terribly far from San Giovanni Rotondo, the church where Padre Pio's shrine is. Oh, wow. So if you want just like a nice miracle tour <laughs> of the east coast of Italy, you can do it in a day. I love how this, yeah, this is something that happened in the 8th century. And here we are in, in 2018, and you can still see it. Like, yeah, the evidence is still there. Right, if you We're question, in... go see it. And the evidence really does cry out uh, for an explanation. Mm-hmm. Because what is the alternative exactly? Now, to be sure, there are forgers, there are liars, there right. are, you know, I'm not saying everyone is so good, why would you ever doubt them? Mm-hmm. My skeptic meter is fairly high on most things. But in this particular case... What do we think happened in the little town of Lanchon? Did the priest just, like, dig up a body? Because this has been tested and it is heart tissue. Right. And so, did he just, like, steal a heart, sneak it into mass? Like, what? Hide it up his sleeve, slip it out during the conference. Like, it's not, that's not believable. That takes more faith to believe than the actual, in some ways. Right. And, I mean, but faith in a bad sense of the term. It, it takes more... Uh, credulity, right. more a, a willingness to believe implausible things mm-hmm. or inaccurate things. Right, right. Uh, because we have to be dealing with a priest who's either like a grave robber or a murderer who yeah. then brings evidence of this into church and then like slips it in there for like who knows what reason. Right. And then draws a lot of attention to himself too. I mean, this is not the kind of thing that just happens and then goes away. Dies off. What about the science behind the miracle of Lanciano? What have investigations into the miraculous host found? Yeah, so in 1970 and 71, mm-hmm. the church actually approved of this doctor who's the director of the Laboratory of Pathological Anatomy in Arezzo, which is about four and a half hours away, uh, Dr. Edward Linoli, to come in and, and take a look and determine whether this is authentic or not. Because, I mean, the church actually has an interest in this. The last thing she wants is to be like, holding up as a proof of the Eucharist, something that turns out to be fake. Mm-hmm. That doesn't help. Right. So better to find out sooner than later if we've been tricked, if this is, you know, some sort of elaborate hoax. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Linoli found that the miraculous flesh is authentic flesh, uh, consisting of muscular styrated tissue of the myocardium, and uh, that the blood was actually blood. In fact, it ha- it's AB, Blood, which is the same as the Shroud of Turin. Connections. Yes, and a common blood type Mm -hmm. um, in Middle Eastern populations. Fascinating. So we can't say definitively, you know, uh, this is the blood and the flesh of Jesus scientifically. Mm -hmm. We can just say this is certainly consistent. So here, you know, we talked about how the senses fail at a certain point. Mm -hmm. But the senses are consistent here. (laughs) That this really is the flesh and blood of Christ. So if you want to disbelieve this and disbelieve the Eucharist, just be aware that you're not saying, I'll only believe what the senses observe. Because here the senses actually point to the reality of it. This isn't the only Eucharistic miracle, though, that we have in the Catholic Church. No, I mean, there there are a lot of them. Mm -hmm. So in the Raphael room in the Vatican, there is a great painting uh, 
by Raphael, as you might imagine from the name of the room. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> uh, of the Mass of Bolsena. And so the Vatican on their website actually explains what happened. Mm-hmm. In 1263, a Bohemian priest is celebrating Mass of Bolsena in central Italy. Mm-hmm. And the at the moment of consecration, the host starts bleeding and it stains the corporal. And so whatever struggles the celebrant had are no longer present. Right. Uh, because this was an incredible miracle. So this immediately, immediately, there starts to be this huge devotion to this miracle. Now this happens in 1263. In 1264, uh, the Pope establishes the Feast of Corpus Christi. Wow. And Bolsena is too small of a town to justify building an amazing kind of cathedral, so they move it half an hour away uh, to the town of Orvieto. And they build the incredible Duomo of Orvieto. So this Duomo is fairly famous uh, for a lot of the artwork in there. Okay. So on the right side is this beautiful chapel that was the basis used by some of uh, the Renaissance artists, especially Michelangelo, in some of the paintings that he did down in Rome. Okay. So it, 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 artistically, it's just extraordinary. The Eucharistic miracle, the bloody corporal, mm-hmm. is kept on the left side in the Adoration Chapel, fittingly. Yes. <laughs> wall to wall. There's just all of these depictions of other Eucharistic miracles. Like, they've just painted all these other instances. Now, here there's an important thing to say. Mm -hmm. As a Catholic, you are not under any obligation to believe in any of those miracles. You're free to say some of those are legendary. You're free to say all of them are hoaxes, whatever you want. These are things that are certainly you're free to believe in as Catholics. Catholics throughout history have believed in these very strongly, but we're under no compulsion to. If this happened, it's a great proof of the truth of the Eucharist. If it didn't happen, oh well. You still have scripture. Right. You still have the teachings of the church. You still have all those things. You don't Mm -hmm. need uh, the signs and wonders. They're a support. They're a way of uh, giving sort of authenticity. In the same way that, you know, the apostles' preaching was true, whether or not they ever performed a single miracle. Right, right. But the miracles sure help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, on the walls in Orvieto, probably some of the miracles they have depicted there are medieval legends. Things where it's like, you know, once upon a time, this happened. But the miracle, the central miracle at Orvieto, the one involving the bleeding host on the corporal, mm-hmm. it isn't like that. There was a devotion within the year. There was an immediate yeah, devotion. Yeah, right away. They have it in the cathedral in no time. Mm-hmm. The Feast of Corpus Christi a year after this. You yeah, know, like, yeah. And that's just too incredible. And we still have the corporal. Yeah. It isn't like, you know, once upon a time there was a Bohemian priest. It's like, <sighs> no. Go into the Adoration In 1263. Yeah. And this was investigated in just like, it's the immediate kind of reaction. You know, one of the things that we talked about uh, and when you're talking about the resurrection, mm-hmm. when you're looking at something like Mormonism, you're saying, okay, allegedly here are these multi-century-old scrolls we've just discovered, tablets we've just discovered, and they tell this story that no one is around to verify. Mm-hmm. In Islam, it's like, oh, Muhammad gets this private revelation that no one else can fact check, and he corrects the whole Bible and all of the early documents. Well, this isn't like that. The Christian message is, no. Right now, or very recently, 
these miraculous things happened or are happening. And you're invited uh, to look at the evidence. So we're not afraid of saying, okay, fact check this. Yeah. Yep. And so the Church of Orvieto is a great proof of that, that immediately it's like, this is true. We believe it. Here you go. And, you know, of course, it, you, can, you can scientifically test all these things. Like, these things are open to examination. We're not afraid of the facts. Mm-hmm. Or science, yeah. Or science, right. Yep. And so the fact that people at the time believed it is important evidence, you know, historically. Right. Because if you're going to say a miracle happened here, you should be able to say, and here's a group of people who believed that miracle and responded to it. Because that's the kind of reaction you expect from a miracle. Right. It doesn't work out if a miracle happened. No one thought it was true and it kind of, you know, sunk into history. And then we pulled it out a hundred years later and now we believe it. We believe it to be true. Right. Exactly. It's a much harder thing to prove or disprove a thing the further you get away from the event. Exactly. I mean, both you and I studied history. I, yep. I know you know this to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that within a year you have this, this community is consistent with what we would expect mm-hmm. from a miracle, which supports the idea that it is, in fact, miraculous. So we've looked at Eucharistic miracles today. If you were just to sum it up or give some takeaways, what would you want listeners to take away from this episode? I'd say number one, uh, miracles are an important part of the Christian message. That they're given as a proof by God. These are signs showing us something about Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. In the case of the Eucharist, is that he really is our nourishment. Yep. And so the Eucharistic signs are built around that built around the gospel and supplement and support it. They are in service of the gospel. Second, that the Eucharist is itself an incredible miracle, but as a continuation, as it were, of the incarnation, a miracle in which only faith alone can receive it. The senses will fail. They'll fall short. Yep. And finally, that there are real documented Eucharistic miracles in places like Lanciano, places like Bolsena or Vieto, mm-hmm. in which we see uh, these extraordinary signs in which there's a visible change as a way of assisting our belief in the invisible change. Beautiful. Thanks for your time. Uh, let's close the episode in a prayer. All right. Glory be to the Father, and, and to, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as, as it was, was in the beginning, beginning is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. And the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.